Welcome back. Hi, this is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming & Curdy PLC, chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. One day, Elizabeth, I'm going to get to know you well enough that I can just call you Elizabeth Freeman. <laughs> but in the meantime, I'm chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, another partner at Fleming & Curdy, um, as we've been doing for over 100 episodes, just chatting about elder law issues, which is what we call this podcast. Elizabeth, I thought maybe this time, because we're looking at tax season and people are thinking about preparing documents and, yeah, okay, we don't have to get everything signed now until mid-May instead of mid-April, uh, but maybe that's great if your mom is a, is a little bit demented, uh, you're having a hard time getting her to sign documents, that gives you an extra month to sit down with her in the coronavirus with your mask on and kind of guide her hand across the uh, the tax return. Oh boy, Robert, this is such a challenge for so many families. When we work with families and, and somebody is incapacitated or they're starting to get a little foggy, one of the questions that frequently comes to us is whether or not a child or a spouse can go ahead and sign a tax return on somebody else's behalf. And this kind of goes in the category for me, Robert, of the question of, hey, my mom is having a hard time writing her checks. If I just write her check and she signs it, that's okay, right? Yeah, and she doesn't have to know what it is at all. Well, she can't keep track of numbers anymore, but she wants to pay her electric and she wants to pay her taxes. Yeah, so it's a kind of a, it is a problem, you're right. And, and I guess we need to say that there are different levels of attention that different kinds of people pay to who's going to sign documents and what authority you have. The IRS, for instance, has a very formalized system for allowing you to sign your mother's, and of course it could be your father's or your husband's or, uh, or any other family member or non-family member that you're acting for. The IRS wants to, to know that you have authority to sign things, uh, and, uh, and so they, they actually have a form that you can fill out to prove you have a valid power of attorney in order to sign your mom's tax return. Uh, the bank, um, well, if they see your mom's signature, if anybody there pays attention to it, they probably won't second guess who wrote out the, the, uh, the, the, the actual check. Uh, the, the pharmacy renewal, they don't care who does it. They're not going to worry about the signature. Transferring your mom's house to the buyer because you're finally getting around to selling the house, well, they're going to want a notary, and the notary is going to want proof, and the notary may have some questions. So there are all sorts of different levels of sophistication of people um, uh, signing for somebody else. But in a general way, I think you and I would agree, Elizabeth, that most families wait too long before really beginning to do it correctly before using the power of attorney that you got mom to sign in our office, I hope, five years ago. Is that well, correct? It is. And I was going to say, Robert, one thing that I think we try and remind families is, is that if you are nominated as the agent under somebody's durable financial power of attorney, one of the things that's important for you to do is to continue involving the principal as much as you can in decisions that relate to his or her finances. So even though your mom or your spouse or your sibling, whoever it is that's the principal, 
has trusted you as the agent to help them manage their finances doesn't mean that the the principal shouldn't still be included in conversations and decisions about how much something costs or the tax returns but we try and explain to people that there's normally I would say kind of a range of capacity that when we look at something like sitting down and reviewing your mother's tax returns with her she may have some interest in it she may not have any interest but either way it's it's worth having a conversation about and my favorite my favorite solution to all of this is having an open conversation with your mother and her CPA and you about what the tax return looks like and if there are any big changes. And so even if your mother no longer has capacity to sign, that she still feels like she's gotten the information that she wants. And over time, of course, that can change. But it's so important to include people in that conversation. You know, every time we have these kinds of conversations about dealing with elderly people, I inevitably um, gravitate toward thinking about my 96-year-old mother. And if I sign her tax return, I'm probably not going to talk with her about it because while I completely agree with you, it's really important to involve people in the decisions, those particular decisions just make her anxious. Talking about money just increases her anxiety. And for a lot of you with 96-year-old mothers, you're probably having the same experience because our 96-year-old mothers and the occasional 96-year-old father, those are depression babies, and money issues just tend to get them more anxious. Uh, at least that's the explanation I usually give for, for my mother. But the point you make, Elizabeth, is really critically important in not just financial settings, in healthcare settings, in placement. Okay. You have a healthcare power of attorney. You're making all of the decisions for your dad. I'm going to switch it to dads now to get it away from my mother. Uh, you're making all the decisions for your dad, and that's great. Um, and you know that he couldn't decide whether he needed to go to assisted living or whether he can continue to stay in independent living, but you still talk to him. You still work through the, the choices and engage him as much as you can. Trying to decide about a, a medical treatment, whether it's appropriate to get him a vaccination, for instance, for, for COVID. Uh, by this point, probably that question has been resolved for most 90-plus-year-olds, but uh, ask him. Ask him what he thinks about it. You don't have to follow exactly what he says, but involve him in the decision-making process. Absolutely, and even if that conversation is short or the memory that your parent has of the conversation is fleeting, it's really important to have the conversation. And what I would say is I I think that there are often many communications that go back and forth between a child and the tax preparer or the child and the doctor. And that's all fine and good if your parent has bestowed that kind of fiduciary responsibility on you as a healthcare agent or an agent under a financial power of attorney. But it's so important to make sure to connect to the degree you can with your parent and the provider. Because I've had situations, Robert, that come up where a doctor will call our office and say, well, I've been told that so-and-so you did a power of attorney for and her daughter's in my office talking about treatments and I just would like a copy of that power of attorney. So we have to remember that the providers that families are working with, they also owe a duty, Robert, to the client that they're serving. And this is particularly true when we look at things that relate to money and to healthcare decisions. And so it's really important to make sure that the provider is included in that discussion to the degree that that he or she can be with a parent. I think your point about anxiety is really well taken. And 
And sometimes I've just asked the question, hey, do you want an update? Do you want to update about what your estimated tax payments will be this year? I got it taken care of, but would you like an update on it? And just even asking that question can tell you a lot about whether or not the person wants to be more involved. You know, one thing you might do on the financial side, rather than filling out the check and having your mom sign the, the each check, uh, one way of keeping her engaged, involved, and aware of what's going on might be to do a monthly uh, recap. This month, we only issued four checks. Here's what they were for. And that's a characteristic of a lot of these folks, by the way, that they just don't have a lot of individual choices. My mother doesn't go on Amazon and, and buy all of the junk that I tend to buy on Amazon. She doesn't have as many transactions in her account uh, as I have in mine. So I could print out the four or not, I say print out like I'm going to show her the check ledger, I might actually do a big um, type uh, description of the four checks and, and say, here's what your expenses were this month. And then be prepared to have her say, I wish you wouldn't do this with me anymore. And I think the, the part of it, Robert, is, is that these conversations are good to have. And, and sometimes they're easier than other times, particularly when you're working with somebody who has diminished capacity and may have short-term memory. That's one of the biggest frustrations when I work with agents is that they will have had a conversation, the parent will have said, okay, that sounds like a great plan, and then the next day the conversation will have kind of evaporated or never have happened if you ask the parent. And so I think that these are difficult things or sensitive things. We welcome folks who want to call our office and ask questions. A lot of times when we represent the principal, the person who has created the power of attorney, we're not able to give legal advice to the agent, but we can certainly explain to the agent what the document is, and then help direct the agent where to ask additional questions if they need legal advice. I think it's important for people to understand what, what the document actually says and what the authority is, and a lot of times that goes most of the way towards answering an agent's questions. And I, I think the last point that I want to make before we leave discussions of powers of attorney particularly, we could have a, a very similar discussion about acting as trustee or even acting as personal representative after your mother's death. How, how do you implement the wishes that she described in her will? But really today we're focusing on powers of attorney. And the last point that I want to make about powers of attorney is it's not an all or nothing proposition. It's not like you're not acting under the power of attorney, you're not acting under the power of attorney, suddenly something happens, you are acting alone and you can't involve your mother. In fact, usually it's a gradual transition. Uh, it may require you to get a letter from the doctor saying that she is incapacitated in order for you to act, if that's the kind of power of attorney you have. But, um, but just because you've gotten that doctor's letter or just because you've begun doing things, doesn't mean that she can't do anything anymore. You should be encouraging her, involving her, allowing her to make decisions, including mistakes, to the extent that, that she can. Last thoughts about powers of attorney and, and the family dynamics? Uh, Robert, I think you've really hit the highlights. Open conversation, transparency, and if you are acting as somebody's agent, please keep good records. This is so important, whether you're helping with health care decision making or with finances. As an agent, you are responsible for keeping records of the decisions you make. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. 
partner at the law firm Tucson, Arizona Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. I'm Robert Fleming, one of the other partners. You've been listening to Elder Law Issues, and uh, and we really hope you will uh, come back next week and listen again. And in the meantime, feel free to tell us what you wish we would talk about. We we sort of range around various elder law topics and. We're always looking to respond to what people are most curious about. Let us know. Thanks.